This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Bustin' Loose Baseball, episode 38. Grant Paulson, Danny Ruye, producer Darius Dameron. Orioles came to town, took a couple games from the Nats, Danny, in a regional rivalry. This rivalry has taken on kind of different dimensions over the years. It's now more of a front office and ownership kind of rivalry than it is a player one. I mean, there was a time, it wasn't that long ago, where both these teams were really, really good. And I caught a lot of flack in in the Baltimore market. I don't even know if you remember this. I actually think you were out of our regular show, Grant and Danny, on 106.7 The Fan, when I... These two teams were getting ready for a series, and you know both were well on their way to winning 90-plus games. And I said to Orioles fans, generally, if you're here and you can hear me, thank your lucky stars the Nats got good. Thank your lucky stars that the Nats got their act together. The Orioles had been bad for some time since really the late 90s, and it's you know I refuse to accept the idea that it was just a random coincidence that they all of a sudden started to do things right at that point. And listen, things have to happen. You have you deserve credit for a Manny Machado turning into a superstar and that roster that they put together that had a chance to beat the Royals and maybe go to a World Series. But my point was it the idea that there was close by competition for eyeballs, dollars, sort of that marketplace, I think was one of the best things that potentially happened uh, to that Orioles run right there. And, you know, of course, they made it into something where I was taking credit or like, you know, Ryan Zimmerman should be given credit for the Orioles winning 96 games. And, of course, that wasn't the intent. But now the Orioles have gone through that real legitimate pain of that rebuild. It was painstaking. It took a long time. They got their teeth kicked in because you really have to do it right in that division. And there's an absolute buzzsaw of a division. Boston's having a down year, only a couple games under 500. You know how good the Yankees are. Toronto's a young team on the come. How, how smart the, the Rays are. They do it with you know calculators and pocket protectors, and they're always in the 90s in terms of wins. There are no nights off in that AL East. If you're going to do a rebuild to try to get yourself really, really, really good, you've got to be judicious about it. You've got to take your time, and you've got to be really sure and sound and keep a really good approach. No shortcuts. And you're starting to see the Orioles organization reap some of the benefits of that. I don't know if they're a playoff team this year. It'd be cool if they made it somehow. But the most important thing is you can absolutely see. You don't have to squint and look through a funhouse mirror. You can see how good this team can be within a season or two. Yeah, they're four games back of the Rays in the wild card, five back of Seattle, and I believe five and a half back of the Toronto Blue Jays, who they're about to play a three-game series against and I think play six more times the rest of this season, who they've actually had you know, some problems with here recently, but have a chance head-to-head to make a little ground. Uh, but yeah, the Orioles, I guess, then being good contrarily, by your logic, would be good for the Nationals, 100%. right? I mean, 100%. Because that means if Washington is seeing Baltimore over the next few years, and they're going to be awesome, I think, in the years ahead with Adley Rutschman and Gunnar Henderson, and they'll get Colton Kowser and, and uh, Grayson Rodriguez and D.L. Hall all in the big leagues. They're going to be legit. And they're going to spend money. I was talking to Mike Elias a few weeks ago. He told me they're going to make trades this offseason and they're going to be aggressive in free agency. Like, this is the year where they're going to really go for it. So if that's going to happen and this is going to start a four-, five-, six-year window, a la the Astros when Elias was there, when they were going to league championship series and one of the better teams in the American League, I would think then, Danny, that this would be a really good sign for Nationals fans in that it's the same logic, right? I mean, you yes. are competing for the dollars in this area, 
And there are people, like, it, you got Nats fans who hate the Orioles and Orioles fans who hate the Nats. But there are plenty of people who are baseball fans who are going to go see good baseball and want to see the star when he's in town, right? It's 40 minutes to Baltimore from Frederick. It's about 45 to D.C. from Frederick. Where do they go? Which game are they going to go see? Right now, it's pretty clear. You're going to Camden Yards. If you live in Columbia, if you live in some of the areas that are considered suburbs of D.C., but not that far away uh, from, from Baltimore, just to give you a sense of that, of that geography. On a good day, which are very rare in this area, I might add, the Ted Leonsa Super Corridor is alive and well. It's 45 minutes from stadium to stadium, right, if you take that BW Parkway. So the point is you're fighting over kind of that that middle ground of of sort of more casual sports fans and the like. Hardcore Nats fans have no interest in the Orioles and then vice versa. Totally fine. That's always going to be that way. No, no issue there. But my point all along is these two share such a unique marketplace. There's a difference between, you know, these 40, 50, 60-year-old sort of Yankees, Mets type things or two teams in the Bay Area, San Francisco and Oakland. This is a incredibly unique I don't even know how to say this, but dynamic between these two organizations where if you were a baseball fan for 30-some years and you lived you know, northern Virginia, lived in D.C., you lived in points that were close, you either didn't care about baseball anymore and you just kind of you know watched TBS Game of the Week on Fox or whatever, or you drove up to Baltimore where you were kind of an outsider. You weren't really part of that thing. Then all of a sudden, out of that marketplace – comes this, you know, this whale in waiting in Washington, D.C. It's a major media market. Doesn't feel that way all the time, but it still certainly is. And, you know, these two franchises can absolutely coexist, and they have in a very icy, bizarre relationship between them where fans that, you know, your neighbor could be an Orioles fan if you live in Woodbridge. Your neighbor could be a Nationals fan if you live, you know, uh, 20 miles up up 95. It's, it's an incredibly unique dynamic. The... Ownership level, though, both are sort of facing tumultuous situations right now. The Nationals, we know, and nobody's officially said, yep, it's a fire sale, we're getting out of here. But all the signs are, we know it, they're selling, talking about the Lerner family and and all their partners. And in Baltimore, there's kind of a custody battle of the thing. As Peter Angelos' health has has declined and his his children are kind of fighting over control, there are court cases, lawsuits and the like, and people are talking about potentially that being up for sale. The backdrop of all of this is Masson. Uh, Major League Baseball, in their infinite wisdom, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, you can't see me, but I'm making the air quotes when I say infinite wisdom, completely lacked the foresight here and did whatever hard-charging Peter Angelos wanted in terms of this cable company that is just a disaster, quite frankly. There is so much money that's being left on the table for having a less-than cable organization that that covers these teams it's frankly an embarrassment. Again, tens of millions of dollars a year are being left on the table uh, that otherwise would be if this was kind of a normal situation. It's not normal. I don't see the end. No matter how many wins one side gets in court, there's always an appeal. There's always something else. And we kind of go back to the beginning and we wait another seven months and somebody writes an article that says there's no update. It's it's something that I don't know how any new ownership group coming in for the Nationals is going to overcome. I know folks have pointed to Ted Leonsis controlling now NBC Sports Washington, I'm sure soon to be monumental, as like a nice big step. But I don't know how that helps him win in court. I don't know how that helps him change the terms of this really terrible deal, both for the Nationals and Major League Baseball. So you go back to Game 2 of this series last night, so that would have been Wednesday night. The Nats had four base hits for their two runs, just couldn't get anything going at the plate, scored individual runs in the third and the fourth, and that was kind of all of their offense. Two of their four hits contributed by Riley Adams, who was two for three and hit a home run. Really good to see him get back on the home run sheet. You know, Riley Adams is a guy 
who I, I would have anticipated would have been a much bigger factor this season for the Nationals in this terrible year. They acquired him at the trade deadline last year. He was a middle-of-the-pack prospect uh, in the system that he was in, and then he was better than that here in Washington. Uh, but if you look at 100 at-bats, four home runs, you know, 200 average, 600 OPS, wasn't particularly pretty. He did hit at AAA. What I thought was, at the beginning of the season— they would flip Josh Bell at the deadline, and then Riley Adams might be their first baseman. Obviously, because you get Luke Voigt in that same deal, because you brought up Joey Manessis, who nobody was anticipating having the year he had at AAA, and he's been great since. Uh, because you have Nelson Cruz as a DH as well, you basically have three DHs. You know, Riley Adams was kind of the odd man out. There just wasn't a whole lot going on for him. So the 26-year-old hasn't had opportunities. Uh, but I'll be curious to see, moving forward, how he factors into the conversation in Washington. They just called up Israel Pineda with Kbert Ruiz going to the shelf, and he's probably done for the year. I think Pineda's a guy you want to start every day at AAA beginning of next year when he's 23 years old and probably continue to develop behind the plate. So maybe that gives Riley Adams an opportunity to be your catcher too, if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, but he's... At 26, you know, he's not a prospect anymore. I don't know if he's a 4A type guy, but I was happy for him last night. Uh, same here. It's, it's been kind of a lost season for him. And part of that is a testament to Cabo Ruiz and how often he wants to catch. He's got the tools of ignorance on pretty much daily at, at this stage. Hadn't left many opportunities for Adams. I've always liked Riley Adams a little bit. I, I can I can sort of deal with that low batting average. I feel like he's a good receiver. I like big guys with soft hands behind the dish. I like that big target. I don't know if that's old school or not. I mean... Catchers now are starting to trend towards a little bit more sleek and athletic, and and you know because guys are going on one knee so much more often, it takes a little bit of a toll off the body. But I, I've always kind of had that affinity again for some old school MLB tendencies. Your catcher is a big hulking guy that's you know presents a big broad target with broad shoulders and a, and everything as he sort of sits up high and, and and is good for pitchers to be able to throw to. I don't know if that's necessarily the same anymore. And when he plays, he's got pop. He's not going to hit for average. He's not going to run. There's there's not much athletic there that's that's exciting about. But that guy can hit the ball with some carry. And having that guy play a couple times a week and potential to you know change one of the you know every three, four, five, six games he plays with a home run and and, and a good called game and, and good receiving, you could do a lot worse as a, as a backup catcher on a competitive club. Yeah, he only threw out about eighteen percent of runners this year, and for his career, uh, he's thrown out eighty-two runners of one hundred twenty-seven have stolen successfully. Um, but, yeah, I just wonder if some power off the bench kind of helps him to hang around a little bit longer. Um, I, I guess I'm just surprised how the year went for him, right? If you would have said to me a few months ago, this is going to be one of the worst teams in baseball, they're going to trade Bell, they're going to be looking for help, I would have thought Riley Adams would have factored into this thing. Then you would have told me k Ruiz is going to miss the final month or so of the season maybe after getting hit with uh, the test- testicular or whatever they're calling it. Uh, I would have said, okay, well, Riley Adams is going to play a ton, and maybe he'll get to for a few weeks, but a little bit surprised by how this has gone, and they're doing what they should do. I mean, Joey Manessis is raking, and you acquired Luke Voigt in a trade, so I get it. I understand how this happened. Uh, Patrick Corbin pitched for the Nationals and was pretty good. Four hits and a run, six innings, four strikeouts, no walks. Back-to-back starts, I think, without a walk now for Corbin. Um, who had won the start before that. And if you look at what he's done since they shut him down because they just couldn't let him pitch anymore, and we were debating what to do on the podcast. Do you put him in the bullpen? Do you 
Um, you know, they weren't going to DFA him, but do you basically put him on a phantom injured list? They just kind of skipped the start, right? Since then, when he came back, uh, he has mostly been awesome. Six innings, four runs against the Cubs is not great, but when I say awesome, I mean for Patrick Corbin. Uh, five and a thirds, two runs, six innings, and one Ernie, seven innings and one run against the Mets, six and two-thirds. He gave you some depth, even though he gave up 12 hits and five runs, got knocked around last start by the Phillies, by far his worst of the six starts he's made since coming back. But then four hits and a run with six innings. I mean, he at least is now pitching like a guy that is a member of a rotation that you don't have to worry a ton about, which has kind of been the goal all along. The problem, Danny, is that he seems to do this at the end of a lot of these seasons. And it's not like you're playing teams that don't care. The Orioles had to have these games. so it's, You can't completely dismiss the results. But we have been here before where they point to September or you know the end of the year. And how we did he this finished, last year. Yeah. And they go, oh, look at Patrick Corbin. He found something. And that's just not the case. So, again, I don't think he, quote-unquote, found anything. But it would have been hard to pitch to an ERA over seven. There's a reason over a full season nobody does that. And I think there's some correction happening here, but he's been better, so give him credit for that. Yeah, 100%. And this is now, I don't know what number we're on, I don't know what version this is, if it's 2.0 or 3.0, but this Patrick Corbin now is not striking people out, he's throwing ground balls. His ground ball rate in terms of of, of balls in play was over 50% last night, and again, recording this Thursday, and talking about Wednesday night's game, maybe that's who he is now. Maybe he's a sinker ball guy. There are going to be starts where that doesn't work and you get hammered because the ball's in play. You can't put away bats. And what we've kind of come to in this statistical revolution is the most effective and sure thing is punching guys out. Right? Well, it also That's seems like, have you, have you noticed this? There are a lot of games where he these teams that try to ambush him on like first and second pitches, he gets deep into the game and pitches better, it seems like. Yeah. Because I, I don't know what it is exactly, but they're they're jumping on him early in count, so they're not getting to two strikes to where they, they can't pick up fastball slider from the same tunnel. And then it seems like he goes six or seven innings in those games. So last night, I think he was like two or three pitches in. He'd gotten two outs right away. And I in my mind, I thought, well, this is going to be one of those good Patrick Corbin nights because the Orioles' plan is obviously to attack this guy. Yeah, and and, and for, the, for a couple of years, that's been a great plan. Fastballs early in the count from Patrick Corbin were just a delight to hitters as he was getting hammered around the yard, giving up home runs, extra base hits, loud contact, exit velocity in triple digits consistently. That's, you know, now, again, kind of a bargain. That's what the sinker baller is hoping for. Let, I'll go deep into the game, potentially. You guys swing early. You don't want to be, you don't want to be behind uh, in the count. We'll all kind of make this even trade here. So I, I don't know. Uh, again, we we did to your point. We did this last year where we thought, ah, it's a Patrick Corbin Renaissance. I tell you, in a lost year, he really pulled it together at the end. It's exciting for spring training. I will not be doing that. To your point, though, nobody's doing it. Patrick Corbin is back. Nobody's doing. He's turned the corner. Nobody's doing. He's found something, and and this is what he'll be for the remainder of his gigantic contract and career here. What we are saying is, hey, these last month plus since they shut him down was pretty good. So good for you, Patrick Corbin. It's not the easiest thing in the world to do to get your teeth kicked in at, at a big league level when you are a prideful, you know, uh, alpha type athlete that all these professional guys are. Where it, you know, you're, you you still think you're as good as you were before, and admitting weakness is not really something that makes a lot of sense for you. So losing as many games and having the the numbers that he's put up when he's had a lot of success at this level, it's probably pretty humbling, probably humiliating at times. Not a whole lot of fun. So give him credit, and I'm glad he's had some success here in a lost season. Yeah, they had to have him have some success because they were likely going back to the well next season no matter what because of that contract status. So this at least allows them to justify that, and at least all offseason, 
you know, they can paint a picture and we can be hopeful that he is a rosterable, tolerable fifth starter, which is kind of the expectation and I think the hope at this point. If he is an innings eater, even in the start a couple of outings ago against the Phillies where he pitched into the seventh, 12 hits, five runs, I'm taking that, dude. Like that, There's nothing wrong with that outing. I, I will gladly accept 6.2, 12 hits, five runs from my fifth starter. Two runs or less in four of his five last starts. Yeah. You know what I mean? Giving you a chance. And that, and that exceeds expectations. Yeah. But I think that's going to have to be the selling point going into next season is you got Gore, Cavalli, Josiah Gray as your young, wherever they are in the rotation, kind of these are the guys you'll come to watch. Either you add a starter, very likely, in the offseason – or you deal from the depth of your, you know, the injured guys that are Evan Lee or eventually Jackson Tatro's hurt. Um, but I, I think you go get a pitcher or something, and then you kind of say, look, we just need Patrick Corbin to give us six innings when he throws and not kill our bullpen. Because that was the, the point midway through this season, and then he started getting bounced in the first inning in two out of three starts, and it, it really cost them dearly. When you were talking about the rotation, it was weird you didn't mention – Anibal Sanchez again, or Levon Hernandez. Well, or, I hope that's that's over. Matt Chico, Matt O'Con- uh, Mike O'Connor, any of those guys. Tim Redding. I also Bill. didn't mention Steven Strasburg. Yeah. Which every time I talk about the rotation next year, and this is not to be a jerk, I, I don't even think about him. I, I don't either. Like and, a couple times, I've actually gotten tweets from people after listening to the podcast where they go, "Hey, you were talking about the future rotation. Why didn't you mention Strauss?" And it's honestly that he's like completely out of mind at this point. I've kind of in my head, I guess, just prepared for the inevitable that is that I don't expect him to pitch again. But, I mean, I'm not a doctor, and that's just me being cynical. But I played the Strauss' coming back game for the last calendar year and a half, and I don't, I'm not playing that game anymore. Yeah, same. Um, the Think about the saga we went through this year, right? That weird – because remember, I, I'd almost forgotten about this until you, you referenced it the other day on, on Grant and Danny – the I'd forgotten about the labor stoppage. I'd forgotten about that everything was delayed for a little bit. And the opening series that was supposed to be against Philadelphia was pushed back. And I like it, it, it slipped my mind. So given the weird start and then shut down, and then we find out like right before the season starts, oh yeah, by the way, Steven Strasburg's not making the trip north. He's gonna build up arm strength. Oh, totally. Yeah, makes great sense. Let's do that. We're all in favor of that. We're working back from surgery. Sure. Let's give him an extra what? What do you think? Like a start or two? Months grant. Months of whatever the hell that was with no updates, everything was weird. You know, the first time we found something out was, yeah, he, th- you know, he threw a simulated inning to live hitters the other day. We're going, wait a minute, that's what you do in February. That's what you do when pitchers and catchers report to be, you know, before Valentine's Day. What are we talking about here? Updates were few and far between, and then of course, you know, we we know how it all went. He makes his one start, and basically shortly thereafter, yeah, the same thing, the same thing that. You know, had him have the surgery, the same problem, the same deal. It ain't right. So I don't know. I'm with you. I'm just not counting on it at, at any point in time. If he does pitch again, that's great. Uh, I you know I, I know I know it's probably not that much fun for him. He likes to pitch, but you know it, it's it's one of the things that kind of breaks your heart and and you, you feel terrible for the guy. But at the same time, the 162 games are scheduled with or without him. You know the nobody as Mike Rizzo once said on, on the Junkies, nobody feels sorry for you. The 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 other team's coming to town to play the game, and you got to go on the road and, and do the same. I don't think he's coming back. That's just my evaluation. Again, I'm not a doctor either. That's just kind of reading the tea leaves from afar. It just doesn't seem like it's likely. 